The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. I got a little hype crew up here. He just said, yes. I'm about that. Just keep that energy. Okay. Guys, who is here this morning just looking for some rest? This has been such a, such a hard week for me. I feel like everything, every time I turn around, there's like some new cataclysmic event that either took place or that has like threatened me in some way. And um, I just really want to pray <laughs> for us, for all of us together. That light is really bright. Father, we approach you this morning recognizing our need. We have a need for you. I can admit that a lot of times when things happen, when crises arise, when things aren't going my way, my first thought isn't always to go to you. But I try to solve the problem in other ways, which usually lead to more frustration and annoyance and anger and gossip and strife and retaliation and sometimes hate. And these are not the things that you delight in or the things that you love or the things that you affirm when we are like you. So I ask that you would forgive us this morning. Forgive us when our hearts don't look like yours. And forgive us when we cherish other things outside of you more than you. Help us to be your followers this morning. Help us to hear your true voice and give us all the strength we need to be obedient, Father. We love you. Amen. If you guys want to take a second to offer a prayer of confession to God, please do so. So if you have found yourself here this morning and have confessed your sins before God, it is my joy to tell you that through the blood of Jesus you have been forgiven and are in right standing with God the minute that you prayed and asked for forgiveness. Because God is faithful and just and good. For those of you that have been following along in person, where we've been following along online, you know that we have been a month going through our new sermon series that is a month old as of today. The Kingdom, Rediscover Your Ultimate Allegiance. And we have seen through the past few weeks that the King has come and that Jesus is that King. And he has come to declare his kingdom. Not only is he declaring his kingdom, 
but also that the kingdom is found in him. The idea, and then we followed that the following week with a sermon talking about the good news of the kingdom that Jesus represents. And then last week we talked about the difference between the near and the faraway kingdom. And Daniel made a really bold statement that I love, and it was this. The difference between the kingdom being near or far is the distance between us and Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That we can be near the kingdom just by being in intimate relationship with Jesus. And this week we're going to continue our series on the kingdom, and we're going to look at the who's who of the kingdom. But before we do that, I wanted to read the intro for you again this morning. You were made to be part of something bigger than yourself, something bigger than any job or hobby or political party or even your own family. God made you first and foremost to be a part of his family and his kingdom. God's kingdom is your ultimate allegiance. When you understand the good news of the kingdom and become a child of God, everything else finds its right and healthy place in your life. In this sermon series, we invite you to see the kingdom of God and submit yourself completely to the life-giving authority of King Jesus. For as far back as I can remember, our world has always had a fascination with people of prominence or importance. We as a society tend to celebrate their achievements and lives in many ways. Our various entertainment award shows speak of them as cameras are going wild to capture every inch of these people as they're getting out of their cars, the limos. And as they're pulling up who's with who and what exactly is going on, and there's just an absolute frenzy over this. I remember growing up and watching the Emmys, the Grammys, and the Oscars because these were the things that seemingly took over the television in the evening if they were on. I was from a big TV watching family, in case you didn't know. Is anyone else there? You relate to that? We can talk sitcoms later. Um, Maybe if you're a nerd like me, you'll admit that you even watched the gala for the president. Because I did. And if not, that's okay. But the truth of the matter is, we develop these shows because we're attracted to the big names, their performances, and in some cases, how these celebrities dress. Our world is notorious for ooing and awing over the outfits that the who's who in Hollywood wear to these events. People in our world go absolutely gaga as they step out of their vehicles and are in the limelight. And to prove how much our world cares about this, I wanted to read a couple headlines for you. Emmys. O.T. Fagbele rocks Nigerian look. Porter wears wings. Michaela J. M.J. Rodriguez wore vintage Versace Atelier in teal in an homage to old Hollywood, her hair flowing down her back, and Bill Porter worked large wings on his black trouser look Sunday at the Slim Down Emmy Awards. 
Coming less than a week after the wild and sometimes wacky fashion of the Met Gala, glamour was back at the Emmys. There were looks of soft pink and yellow statement minis in bright sequins and Nicole Byer in a stunning off-shoulder orchid purple tulle gown that was sure to hand her a best-dressed spot. Many, including Kate Winslet, Jean Smart, and Cecily Strong, went for classic black, the latter with a high slit and low plunge. Black isn't Cedric the Entertainer style. The evening's host walked the red carpet in color-blocked shades of blue. Porter worked the poses for the camera, showing off his wings. I am the fairy godmother. There is a theme going on, Porter said of his recent turn in Cinderella. O.T. Fag Benley, meanwhile, wore a traditional Nigerian look in red with black accents by a Lagos brand Sophisticat. I had to look up some of these words, how to pronounce them. Okay, so the next one, the next headline, and a little bit of that article. 911 fans are still going wild after seeing Angela Bassett's stunning Emmy Awards dress. The award-winning actress, producer, director, and activist continues to stun at the, at the graceful age of 63. She recently walked the red carpet at the 2021 Emmy Awards in a gorgeous dress designed by Greta Constantine. The black and pink ensemble was accompanied by Gismondi jewelry, a Tyler Ellis clutch, and classic Louis Vuitton heels. Let's just say that Angela was absolutely glowing as Hollywood gathered to celebrate the best in television and film. And there are fans that would say that they love that. And there are tons and tons and tons of articles that you could read about who wore what and how they accessorized it, the meaning behind the outfits they wore, and even in some cases, how much they cost, which would make a lot of our home mortgages look like pocket change. And do we care about these things? As a matter of fact, a lot of us do. Check out this headline. The News Nation announced that Emmy ratings are up 7.4 billion viewers this year. And this should not surprise us because as a group of people, we are so drawn to the glitzy and glamorous. And maybe these examples are not exactly what you're into. And maybe these things don't grab your oohs and ahs, but what do? Are you like me? Maybe you're enamored by big sporting events. So you get in awe when you get on your social media apps and you see that your favorite sports team is coming back after a huge win. My team's the Buffalo Bills. And everybody is lined up at gates, rattling gates as their favorite players are getting off the airplane and they're just taking photos and they're hoping to get high fives and cheering. Or maybe you see flyers for huge events and you place them in the seam of the book you are reading because you see that the keynote speaker is every who's who in that specific field that you are really invested in. Our culture makes a big deal about who we think is prominent and important. We go out of our way to find ourselves in the presence of greatness. And if we are honest, most of the times we're trying to aspire to it. Recently, while on vacation with my family, I stayed at my cousin's house in Billings, Montana. And as we pulled up, we noticed that they had a three-car garage. 
As you enter the house, you see a huge office space with a great big window that you can look out as you do your work. You also see high vaulted ceilings and lots and lots of bedrooms. There are also many planted refrigerators in this house holding all the beverages that you could want. And there's one outside too. <laughs> they have a small gazebo with uh, interesting cigar ashtrays all over the table. They have a hot tub and a gaslit fireplace that comes up from the bottom of their table that you can roast s'mores on. It was absolutely beautiful, and I just couldn't wait to get home to just hop on Zoom and say, Andy, tell me your secret. How do you live this way? How can I live this way? And we all do this. And while we celebrate those things, we tell other people about them. I mean, I was so excited about seeing my cousin's house that I came to church that next Sunday. I think it was like two days later or something. And uh, I was, no, it was probably like three, but I, I was like, Chad, and I have hardly said anything to Chad Stenwick in our time here together. And I was just telling him about how amazing my cousin's house was and how I thought it was something I wanted to do, right? But we all do this. And while we celebrate a diversity of who's who and we attribute importance and value to people and the things that come with them, you have to wonder, is this what impresses God? So the big question I want to ask you this morning is, who are the ones that make the biggest entrance on the red carpet of the kingdom? And the answer is those who will make the biggest entrance on the red carpet of the kingdom are those who realize their need for Jesus and those who have accepted a position to serve in the kingdom. So there are two people that I want you to notice. The first person that I want you to notice is the poor in spirit. That's what I mean by noticing a need for Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 5, 3 together. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that I want you to notice is the word blessed. The word blessed here is not simply a blessing. Blessed is supposed to be seen here as beyond merely happy or circumstantial joy. When looking for a definition, I found in my Bible note liners... The ultimate well-being and distinctive joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So that's all I want you to see that word. And then for the second word that really sticks out here, and it grabbed my attention right away, was the word poor. And oftentimes, I think when we see the word poor, no matter what is in front of it or what is behind it, we automatically think monetary value or financial lack, right? The opposite of what it means to be rich. But this is also not to be taken at face value because as you continue to read, you see that the word poor has in spirit following it. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is not financial value, okay? The word that I kept seeing as I studied and as I looked it up and as I was reading about it and as I was discussing this with a friend, I came to understand it as spiritual bankruptcy. And that was absolutely confusing for me because a lot of times in my life, when I have heard the word spiritually bankrupt, I've always heard it in a very negative context. Like there was this big, huge split and people left and it had left the people there spiritually 
bankrupt. And that's not what we're talking about either. And so we have to realize that that is not the same application that we're giving this this morning. And so what, are we, what do we mean by this? And, and how are we supposed to understand the poor of spirit? The poor of spirit are people who recognize their spiritual poverty and their need for God. Okay? So this is the very opposite of the kingdom we live in. To be needy or to have need is looked down upon in our culture. Think of some of the ideas that our culture pushes or the things that people believe. We believe to get off, give off the appearance that we have it all together is the ultimate goal. We believe in the American dream that we created for ourselves. We believe the more we accomplish, the bigger our resume. And the bigger our resume, the bigger our LinkedIn. The bigger our LinkedIn, the more importance we have. The more importance we have, the more money we command. The more money we command, the more friends we have. Because the more influence we have. Right? And then the more people will like us. We are taught that if we want something, we can go out and get it. Nothing is out of reach. We believe that to have more is to be great, but that... It's not what the kingdom of God teaches. And I'm not trying to shame anyone who has a nice career, house, or even personal wealth, but these are all accomplishments, accomplishments that we have and not what places us on the red carpet of the kingdom. In order to be spiritually poor, I believe that the kingdom demands that we let go of our self-sufficiency. And we are accessing God through our need of Jesus. So I find myself sometimes thinking, and I'm sure that some of you do too, believe that we've got a right to go before God or that we've earned or done something that has made this valid, but it's really him, right? Not us. And to think about what does God desire exactly and what are the things that God loves, I got a few verses that I just want to run through really quick. Psalm 51.17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart before you, God. Or a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Right? This is humility. This is David talking about the kind of heart that God loves. James 4.6. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So God is going to give grace to those that humble themselves. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And I found that one really incredible because that's Old Testament, right? That was before the sacrifice of Jesus. Because what does that say? For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So it wasn't religious work. It was an acknowledgement of God. Isn't that incredible? That's what God loves. Look at Matthew 9.13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, mercy, not sacrifice. Calling sinners, not the righteous. And we see many examples of this in Scripture. But I think we keep trying. Even though that's what it says God loves and what God wants. I think we try to earn it another way. Right? We try to earn his admiration in other things that we do. It's almost like we're going before God and we're like, isn't this lovely and beautiful? 
And a lot of times I think God sees it and he thinks those things are lovely and beautiful sometimes, but I think he's like, but that's not what I require. For a modern example, how this plays out, I thought of uh, the relationship with my wife. Now I know that my wife would really love it if I picked up my socks from the living room. Does anyone else have a problem with leaving their socks all over their house? I leave them in my living room. They end up in my hallway. They end up in my kitchen. I mean, I have socks for months in my house somewhere, I'm sure. Okay? And it is my wife's absolute pet peeve, okay? So my wife would really love it if I picked up my socks in the living room. And imagine with me that she told me this. And so I know what she wants and how to win her admiration, right? But in response, and out of all these good intentions I have, because I do love my wife, I go to the store and I buy her the most colorful wildflowers. And I said, babe, I was thinking of you today. So I bought these flowers, these wildflowers, to really accentuate how I feel about you, the wild woman you are. And my wife is wild, guys, and that's okay. In which Susanna will say, Jacob, those flowers are really amazing, and I love them. But what I really would love is if you would pick up your socks from the living room and make it a habit to do this every day. Okay, so after that, I heard what she said, you know, and I'm I'm really excited about how much I love my wife. So I decided in my love for my wife that I'm going to get up early in the morning and I'm going to change my kids and I'm going to set the coffee pot and I'm going to make breakfast for everyone. And it's going to be an extravagant breakfast because I do it all big, okay? So I, I'm extra, that's okay. And so I, I go up to my wife and I'm like, hey babe, did you just love how I did everything this morning to make sure that everything got done and so your load was a little lighter and don't you just feel loved? And to which she's probably gonna respond, yes, I love how proactive you've been this week getting up and helping out with all these things, but do you know what I would really love? I would love it if you picked up your socks from the living room and made it a habit to put these things away. And I'm like, you see, I could have had her affections if I would have just picked up my socks. It's like I'd forgotten what she wants and I tried to replace it with what I thought was important. And don't we do that a lot with our relationship with God? But God, I've read my Bible every single day. I don't. It's not your sacrifices, right? It's your acknowledgement of God. It's the same thing. It just looks different. Now, reading your Bible every day is wonderful, and God delights in that. But it's our need of him. That's that's where that starts. It's that relationship. And there are some things we do that I believe he is happy with, like I said. But a lot of times, it's not what's required. I think we are truly poor in spirit, when we realize that in and of ourselves, we are helpless in life circumstances, and the greatest need we have is Jesus. And there are a few profiles that I see in scripture that I believe really tell this story. And I'm hoping that by sharing this, we will have a better understanding of this. The first is a really beautiful story that we find in Luke. While Jesus was in Bethany, he had gone to the home of Simon the leper, When a woman who had lived a sinful life had seen him there, she had taken with her an alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. 
And while Jesus is sitting there, this woman starts to pour the perfume on his head. And then she takes it a step further, right? And she's kissing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And when the disciples notice this, these are the very followers of Jesus, the people that probably should know Jesus the best. They become indignant. They're, in, they're uncomfortable about it, right? They responded uncomfortably. And what did they do? They do a lot of what our culture does. This is really interesting. Jesus, if you knew the woman that was touching you, you would never let her touch you. If you only knew the person that was touching you, you would never let them touch you. Right? We have names for those types of people. If we do a little bit of research, we find out she was a prostitute. Her life was probably very hard. And so here she is in this moment, probably at the end of her rope, a sinful woman. Okay, I don't know about you, but when we're having conversations with people, I don't generally go, hey, that's so-and-so, a sinful man. Okay? How did people know that? She was probably wearing this. Like, she was probably destitute, poor, sad, in spirit. She was probably walking around. She had no more answers. She was done. But she finds out that Jesus is nearby. This amazing Jesus. And she has to go. And she takes with her what? The most expensive thing she owns. Because it's worth nothing compared to Jesus. The one she's going to see. And this is incredible because what's another thing they said? They said she could sell this perfume for a year's wage. A year's wage. I don't have anything in my house worth a year's wage. I don't think. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up later. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I don't, and I'm like thinking about this. And I'm like, she could have had a really nice life for a day, a week, right? But she doesn't see that as anything compared to Jesus. All she can think is, I need to do this thing to Jesus because that's the answer. I've tried everything else. And Jesus doesn't condemn her. Right? Isn't that incredible? Look at how incredible Jesus is. He doesn't condemn her. What does he do? He tells the disciples, first, when I came in here, you didn't give me water to wash my feet, and this woman hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears since, she, since I've came in here. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Then he says, who's been, who do you think's gonna, who do you think's gonna be more appreciative? The person who's been, been, uh, forgiven a smaller debt or a bitter debt? And they said, bitter. And he said, there's the answer. And he said, and this woman's faith, every time the message of the gospel goes out, she's going to be remembered for what she did. She's going to be on the red carpet of the kingdom. Isn't that incredible? And that's so simple. Okay, another story. The next story that came to mind was the story of the centurion. A centurion is a commander of a hundred people. The centurion has soldiers that obey his commands, so they come when he says come, they go when he tells them to go. So this man is a man of influence. This is not an impoverished person. He has money backed from the government, okay? And Jesus was now entering Capernaum. And when entering Capernaum, Jesus is approached by this centurion. And the centurion tells Jesus that he has a servant who is sick and that needs to be healed. Knowing what we just talked about, the centurion, our world would probably see this man and be like, well, why does he have to go? He has men that can go for him. And our world today would be like, just send an email. Couldn't he go into a neighboring village and try to buy a cure? I mean, he's got a little bit of money. 
Maybe you could take it by force. But the centurion, being poor in spirit, knew that he couldn't do what Jesus could do. I think what we see here is like a really good example of a New Testament leader, a good leader. Because here's a leader of 100 people, and what he does is he goes to Jesus. When you think about what that did for the people that were serving underneath him, it's got to be amazing. I thought of this the other day. I thought that was just so incredible. So Jesus asked, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion tells Jesus that he is unfit to have Jesus in his home. But to just say the word and that his servant would be healed, he understood what Jesus could do. Because he's like, I've got people that go out when I tell them, and I've got people that come in when I tell them to come in. I know that you just have to say the word, and that's how this works. It's going to happen. Here's a powerful man that fights, right? He's a, he's a soldier and has people that fight with him. But he comes to Jesus saying that he isn't enough. You are my need. Jesus tells the centurion that he hasn't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And that servant would be well. So the centurion saw his need in Jesus. He might have been great in the eyes of some. Probably a lot of people thought he was great. But he wasn't great enough. He knew his ultimate need was Jesus despite all the stuff he had done, and he's going to be on the red carpet of the kingdom. That's pretty incredible. Okay, so the last story I want you to look at this morning to, to give you an example of this poor in spirit is the story of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. What we know is that she is a woman and that she has been bleeding for 12 years. Like, there's not a whole lot of background there, right? But the only thought... And this is such a remarkable thought that we see from this woman is one simple line. And it says, if only I could touch Jesus's cloak, I would be healed. That's it. That's the only quote we get from her in the Bible. That's it. And so while that's so short, it was so powerful. And Jesus responds to her belief. How? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. She went and she touched him, believing that that was the answer to the problem that she had for 12 years. I'm sure she probably had gone to every single option you could think of back then. I bet you she was trying to find all the ways to stop bleeding, but nothing was working. And out of her desperation, out of her need, out of her lack, which she didn't have, she went and she touched Jesus. So what does the woman with the alabaster box, the centurion, and the woman who couldn't stop bleeding have in common? They knew that in and of themselves, they were completely helpless. There was nothing they could do to better their situation. There wasn't a status. There wasn't, a, there wasn't an act. There wasn't any sort of ritual thing they could do. They needed something more. They needed Jesus. And these are people of varying and differing backgrounds, much like we are, right? With a deep need of Jesus. And the answer they were looking for to the brokenness they had was met in Jesus. Is this who we are this morning? Is Jesus the answer to the brokenness that we have? Do we come to Jesus humbly acknowledging our need for him? So the first person that will be on the red carpet of the kingdom is the poor in spirit. And this, this leads us to the second type of person that will be on the red carpet of the kingdom. And that second type of person is the least. I want us to look at our second main scripture this morning, and that's Luke 7, 28. 
And it says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Who is John? Well, John is John the Baptist. If we were to look at Matthew eleven eleven, we see an almost identical verse here. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the same John that we see spoken about in Malachi 3.1, the forerunner, the coming Elijah who is heralding the kingdom. Remember, he's the guy, repent, make your way straight for the coming Lord, right? This is the same John who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan, okay? Could you imagine being the person who baptized Jesus? I have baptized people. I have never baptized Jesus. You know how cool that is? <laughs> like, so how could he not be considered great? In our culture, this would be like the person who cuts the president's hair or the guy who cuts like Eminem's hair. I remember I was watching Entertainment Tonight years ago and they made such a big deal. This is who Eminem goes to to get his hair cut, right? And that person was great on Entertainment Tonight. And the haircuts were like $1,000 or something. It was wild. But Luke... As we see in the passage in Luke, there's a really strong statement. And it says, if we can look at it again, I tell you that there has never been anyone born of woman that is greater than John. But abruptly, then it says, yet. <laughs> How can there be a yet? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. How is that possible? The kingdom of heaven is so different from our kingdom. Do you remember? You've heard this said before that the last is going to be first. And I think that a story that shows us how God thinks when it comes to being the least is exemplified in the story of the rich young ruler and if you remember the rich young ruler, he approached Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing exactly how this man is going to respond and, and this man in general, he says, have you followed the letter of the law? And the rich young ruler says, I have. I bet you that sounded a little arrogant. Then sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus was really, literally telling this man how to be great. And the rich young ruler leaves feeling dejected. So this is where Jesus says how hard it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler couldn't let go of his self-sufficiency. Who he was was tied up in all he had. This man was so comfortable that he couldn't see the value in giving to others. It reminded me of another story about the least. Do you remember the conversation between James and John with Jesus about who would sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom? They were so desiring to be Jesus' right-hand man and the power that comes with that. And Jesus tells them that they don't know what they are asking for. But only a few sentences later, he says something remarkable. Do you remember? It was after he was telling them that they didn't quite understand what they were asking and Explain that a little bit to them. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, it says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What you're asking for me, you don't fully understand. If you want to be great, you're going to need to go low. You need to serve. I haven't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. And what we see from Jesus is not only what he's telling them to do, we later see that it's exactly what he does. And we talked about this a couple months ago um, where I was talking about how Jesus is the boss we've always wanted. And what I meant by that is that Jesus not only tells us how to do a job, he does the job. And then we're to imitate him in that job. That's the perfect boss, right? Because we've had bosses that are like, I need you to go and do this. I remember I worked at a factory once. It was like this random factory job I had. And I think you only had to put like a dollop or a couple dollops of like glue on this like filter piece, right? And then you'd set it on the thing and then you'd grab another one and it was real assembly line and you just keep doing it. I remember one time the boss came over, didn't say any words, glued two things, and then handed me the next one and expected me to do it. I had no idea what I was making. I had no idea what I was doing and I was let go in a week and a half. I don't even know why I was like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. I don't even know why I was there at this point. But that's not what Jesus does, okay? Jesus tells you what it means to be low, and then he does it. And how did he do that? Because he got all the disciples together, right? And while they were all together, and no one could decide who was going to wash anyone's feet, Jesus fills the water basin, and he wraps a towel around his waist. And he wipes the feet of his servants. And they say to him, they're indignant again, right? And they're just like, whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, because here's the master, the king of the greatest kingdom that has ever existed, on his knees, holding nasty, dirty, scummy feet. And he is washing them. And he says, I have to do this. And what did they do? They went out and they took that message everywhere. Guys, I don't know if you know this. We're not in the part of the world that that message existed in. We're here because of that. That's why we're here right now. Because people served and it kept carrying it. Kings and other kingdoms do not do this. It's unheard of. But here is the king modeling service. This is so different than what we preach as a culture. To be great means to make much of oneself and to be least is absolutely unheard of. Our kingdom doesn't often look like the kingdom we need, and it's incredible what we get in Jesus. What would this look like to serve in our world? I thought of many things. It might be the elderly woman who drops off cookies to the teen center in Fort Orchard and excitedly asks, and excitedly proclaims, just dropping off more cookies, and then asks, do they like them? Because she knows that she's contributing to the sharing of Jesus by offering cookies that we can have while we're talking. It could be the simplicity of seeing an emergency come up with your neighbors and being willing to watch their children or home as they go away. It could be the consistent desire to make sure that the people you work alongside are experiencing this, the true service that those who love Jesus are called to so that they would see it and follow him. Just the other day, I was having coffee with Daniel, and he explained to me how he a long time ago would stress so much about preaching until he realized that it was another part of the Sunday service and not the main event. 
We have a church culture that puts such an emphasis on the message and the person preaching it, but here was Daniel telling me that it was just another piece of Sunday morning, and I think my jaw dropped. Because as a culture, we put so much importance on speakers and people proclaiming things. He was saying that it was no more important than the person leading worship, the tech team, the door greeters, the person handing out communion. And I'm not trying to elevate Daniel, but what I took away from this conversation is that there are going to be people that are closer to Jesus in the kingdom just from their ability to serve because they love Jesus, they caught his vision, they had a glimpse of the kingdom, and they shared it with someone else in service. That was amazing to hear Daniel say those things. I have never thought like that. So what if we realize that the person greeting people at the front door was fulfilling God's calling to serve and their simple joy in doing it was honoring Jesus? Such a simple task taken on to show someone the love of Jesus and this is just as important as the person giving the message. I, get, I can admit it, I get blinded by worldly success. I can admit that I have a tendency to look at people who win Super Bowls as great. I would love to spend the afternoon with somebody who's won a Super Bowl. It was just the other day that a brother told me that God takes just as much joy in Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl as he does his child taking his first step. I can't take credit for that thought. That's not mine. That was interesting, though. God delights in all of these things in our lives, but they're not what cause us to step out on the red carpet, as we saw earlier. So what will put us on the red carpet of the kingdom is when we are poor in spirit. When we are poor in spirit and we humbly go to Jesus is our greatest need. Second, that we would make ourselves a servant for the kingdom and place others before ourselves that Jesus' name would be lifted high. So what do I want you to do with this information? One, I want you to realize that your greatest need is Jesus. There is no thing that we have done or there's nothing that we could accomplish in and of ourselves that make us worthy. There was a hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, and I've heard this said a million times, it was, nothing in my hand I bring, but only to the cross I cling. It was Jesus and Jesus' work. It's what he offers us, not what we bring to him. And we have to realize that we are missing something, and that is Jesus. A lot of times we see us I remember so many times hearing Dave Frederick preach, Father, we are a needy people, or hearing him pray, I'm sorry. Never had I put so much thought in that as I have this week. I need Jesus for my marriage, for my children, for my job, for my friends. I just need him. And that's such a great place to find yourself. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to serve. I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus that wrapped the towel around his waist and washed the feet of the disciples. And there are plenty of places that you can do that in Kitsap County. We're in one of them right now. Above us, there is a youth center slash shelter. And I'm sure Paul Morris would love to have you volunteer for him. I would love to have you volunteer for me in Port Orchard. No one's put me up to this, guys. There was no one that told me I had to do that. I just love our youth, and they're really special people, and they're broken people like you and me. And if we can model them what the kingdom looks like and what the people that are going to be on the red carpet of the kingdom look like, maybe they'll do that in their smaller communities. 
And we'll see other people with us on the red carpet one day. If this is too close to home, there are many other organizations that are waiting for someone to serve them. So who will be on the red carpet of the kingdom? The poor in spirit, the least. That have committed their life in service towards others. Pray with me this morning. Father, we need you. And I ask that you would help us to find ourselves before you. I pray that we would, instead of running to all these other things in our times of great need and crisis, that we would find ourselves in you. God, I ask that we would find our joy and our delight and purpose there and not in the many things that we find ourselves doing. We just thank you, Lord. Amen. So, for communion, if you guys remember, we're doing that in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice, and we're identifying with Christ in that, that as we eat of his body, and as we drink the juice, we are proclaiming the covenant of the new blood that we have in Christ and the coming kingdom. So I invite you guys to do that. Thank you.